0: it comes up, we're going to be talking today about more than enough in ministry, following along with our John um, series on Sundays. So uh, open up to John chapter 6, John chapter 6, and um, we'll get started here today. I'm so glad that we have a new semester. I believe that you guys are the ones that the Lord has called at this time for such a time as this to do an amazing job at SUM. Use what you have been given for the Lord. Do not let this time pass you by. You will regret it. I wish I could spend some time preaching. uh, Thank you, sir. Preaching some Proverbs to you right now. And maybe, maybe that will be something we do uh, at the start of the new year. Because I'm considering what to do for you in the new year. And that just came to me as a great idea. Is to actually talk about some Proverbs and putting those into practice. Join us for chapel okay and then i'm going to make sure we're good join us for chapel amen and then let's see if we're coming through good here all right great job Joby. b okay john chapter 6 today's message is more than enough in ministry We uh, are looking at the Gospel of John, looking through the signs on Sunday, and now we have uh, been applying them to you guys in chapel to see the lessons that God can give us in ministry. Let's read through this passage quickly so that we can see the context of the multiplication here of the bread. And the story, John chapter 6, starting in verse 1, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. In our money, that would be about $25,000. Average income in America is about $50,000. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fishes, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there, and we realized uh, or saw in the Synoptic Gospels that that didn't count women and children. So it's closer to 20,000 when you count all the people that were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. That's what's awesome. They ate as much as they wanted. Here's where we get the title for our message today When they all had enough. When they had all had enough. That is a very weird way of saying that sentence. When they had all had enough, and the reason why that's weird, and I was listening to myself, I listened to both of my sermons today on my bike ride, and um, I was listening through this, and I was like, why is this so hard for me as a preacher to read? Well, now I know why. There's two hads in there, two hads. Do you see it? When they had all had enough. It almost seems like that is like a grammatical error that somebody in the translation should have had, had put that better I would just like to say when they all had enough when they all had enough why do we need the other had in there it doesn't seem like we would we would need that when they had all had enough and that's where we get the title of the message Jesus is more than enough in ministry he's all that we need enough to eat he said this to his disciples gather the pieces that are left over let nothing be wasted So they gathered then, filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And that's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. As I mentioned before, Uh, in, in yesterday's sermon is that this is a story found in all of the Gospels. So it's found in all four, so it's very important. There is some new information that John gives us that actually gives us the historicity of this event, and that is that no one names in the Synoptic Gospels, excuse me, who Jesus originally asked, where can we get the food for or what can we do about this, yet John tells us it's Philip. That's very important because Philip is from that area and John is once again attesting to the historicity of the synoptic gospels and they're more like surround sound. So uh, anytime you see different information, it's not contradiction, it's always building up the story, adding more information. And so we need to remember that even though John brings us 90% of new information uh, than the other synoptic gospels, it's never contradictory, it's always complementary. The story is pretty simple, you guys get it. There are people following Jesus because they're hungry. As they're following Jesus, he preaches to them all day into the evening. They're now hungry. They need something to eat. Jesus offers or asks Philip to do something about it. He knows that he can't, but he sets him up, not to make him look dumb, but to have them recognize his inability. And then he uses what a boy gave sacrificially, offered up. He uses that little bit. Those five loaves and fishes, and they're even said to be small, so maybe that was literally just his lunch or the siblings he might have had with him. It doesn't mention his parents, so I'm assuming it was just him with his siblings. That would just be the equivalent in our day of a few cheeseburgers with some small french fries. That's it. Not even the Big Macs, not even the large fries, just just a few things for a few children to eat. And then Jesus blesses it, multiplies it, feeds all of the people. The abundance is so great that there's 12 baskets left over, and I always, like to imagine that some of those baskets went home with the little boy. You could just see him coming home, his mom wondering what happened, and he tells her the whole story. What an amazing uh, thing that that would have been in their family. And then that last verse really shows us uh, the divine... Uh, The calling of Jesus and how he was never going to be distracted by the people, by their popularity. And so they wanted to make him king, but he came to die on the cross, not to conquer us as a nation or to conquer the land, but to conquer our hearts, and he will come back as a conquering king. There are so many things in here I can pull out and apply to us in ministry. But before I do, I just want to make mention of a post that I put up uh, yesterday talking about what are miracles because we live in the 21st century and miracles are kind of like looked at like to believe in fantasy to believe in myth that you're really stupid if you believe this happened and so Augustine a long time ago around the 300s wrote a great work called the city of God it was his way of describing a Christian worldview and this is what he said miracles are. Miracles are not contrary to nature, but only contrary to what we know about nature. And then I went on to write more about this theory of miracles. It's called the epistemic theory of miracles. Uh, E-P-I-S-T-E-M-I-C. Epistemic. There we go. Epistemic. Epistemic theory of miracles. The epistemic theory of miracles, which I hold to lightly, or I think is the best explanation for miracles, is that when a miracle happens, it is not against the laws of logic or against the laws of nature. It is simply God moving in through nature supernaturally to change the order, to change what it is doing naturally for his own purpose and glory. So meaning the water that was changed in, uh, in, into wine, if you'd have overdrank that wine, you would have got drunk on that wine. The property of that wine was still wine. The way that he made the wine was still by the way of nature and the laws that he created. And one of the laws of nature is an all-powerful being can create whatever he wants. That is a law of nature. That's literally the law of creation. That a creator outside of matter and space-time can create matter and space-time. And within matter and space-time, that creator can make whatever he desires. Now, he'll never, as the Bible teaches us, he'll never do anything against his nature. So he won't do like Krishna did and steal all the girls' clothes and have them chase him naked through the through, through, through the city or whatever, through the... Uh, through the uh, the countryside, rather, so he 's not going to make a bunch of naked women to please him sexually he 's not going to do that like what Muhammad does, or rather what Allah does in, in paradise for men who die in war to have all of these virgins. that is very true that is not a, a an ignorant slam against Islam that is a true belief of Islam that they will have multiple sex partners in heaven, and it is 70. You can learn about that. And there's also a, a little bit, they're called huri, and there's also a little taste, a little uh, innuendos mentioned that the young servant boys who serve these men as well, their alcohol and their food, are there for sexual pleasure as well. There's a little uh, little hint that they will be given young boys as well. Now, that is a bit controversial, uh, but there is seems to be a hint of that there but uh, this is not what God creates God doesn't create things against his holiness against his righteousness against his love so anything that is not against his character or against logic he can create because this is what he is in nature he'll never contradict himself now remember the Bible says that God cannot lie so God cannot tell a lie so if somebody says can God do anything you have to clarify what can he do anything of anything that is according to his nature and according to the logic that he has taught us he would not be illogical why because God cannot lie God cannot lie and illogical thinking or illogical actions is a way of lying against the truth so all things that God does is true he is truth Does everybody get that just like he cannot die he is life and so and there can be no darkness in him. Now the Bible sometimes says when he comes he comes with a tempest and darkness surrounds him. This is just a scene of judgment and how he kind of turns out the lights in the way we see it. He'll he'll turn out the sun, turn off the sun, turn off the stars, but he himself is always perfect light. He himself is always light. There's no shadow in him. And so when we take on this idea of miracles, and you can look at it because Espinosa also believed it along with Augustine and Aquinas. So some of the greatest thinkers uh, believe this to be so. When we look at what Jesus is doing here, Jesus is God in the flesh. So go back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was, and the word was God, come on, talk like you're here this, this morning. And the word was God. Thank you. The word was God. John 1, 14, John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word dwelling there literally means he tabernacled alongside of us. He pitched his tent in humanity. Now all things are possible to God's character and to what is logical. Does everybody get that? If we believe those first four words of the Bible, in the beginning God, and now we believe those first few verses of John, we now know the God of creation is walking among men. And, and what's even more mind-blowing than this, and I can send you guys some YouTube videos by the same inspiring philosophy guy who puts out great videos, and I saw Joe B. liked his page. He's also done things on Miracles 12 minutes long. I could put it up here right now. It would just blow your mind. It would just blow your mind because when you break everything down, to what we are now learning to be as quantum physics. That's the big thing of what we're learning everything to be. Quantum physics is just an expression of the intelligent mind of God. That's really all it is. And so we think oftentimes that spirit is secondary. Spiritual things are more illusory, like illusion, and everything here, concrete, table is real I'm real because I have a body that is absolutely not true when we go down to the, the most minute the, the levels that where we can go to the quantum levels we now find out very similar to what other religions have believe will give credit to where credit is due where truth is found there you know anybody says love your neighbor as yourself there's truth found there but we know where that truth comes from But the Eastern world has put more on that than we as Christians have as of late. And we need to remind people of this viewpoint that all of this is not an illusion, and that's where they would be wrong, but all of this is the product of a mind. And so where the Eastern philosophy would say that all is God and God is all, and that all of nature is just the expression of the mind of God, the thought of God, we wouldn't say it like that, and the reason why is because God is separate from His creation. But their emphasis on that should give us, as Christians, a little bit of run for our money in the philosophy department and sciences, where we need to take back the understanding of creation as we learn in panentheism that creation is the extension of god's power it is not him himself but as the rays of sun come from the sun and are distinct from the sun so is creation and all that is here and so when we go to quantum physics we see all of the intelligence of god right there before our very eyes we see that god has arranged these things by his very spiritual substance and so that's why the bible says that God created the heavens and the earth. The spirit came first. The, the spiritual came first, then the natural. And you can even see that in the book of Romans as it comes to sin and to the, the order of those things. And so when we look at what God is doing there, Christ Jesus in the flesh, uh, God in the flesh, Christ Jesus is doing, multiplying uh, bread, multiplying uh, fishes, all he's doing, as we could see in a, in a more like simplistic way, is he's just molding together molecules that he's already created, saying fish, bread, you you get what I'm saying? He's already doing the the thing that he's, he's done from the beginning. He's just doing it right there in front of you. He's just multiplying it. Because for God to create one fish in the beginning, male and female, for them to reproduce, And for those that are asexual, whatever, for them to do their thing, certain sea creatures, all he's doing is just right there at that moment doing it again, over and over and over again. And I've even had uh, people blow my mind like this, how active is God in everything that we call the natural world? Because the Bible says he sustains it even right now. And so I had one man say to me in my doctoral classes, did God uh, create the flower to continue to make itself? And then he sustains that process. Or does he like the flower so much that every time it goes into germination, he allows it to be created again, again, and again? And you may just say that's an easy question to answer. It's procreation. The answer is God allows it to happen, and he sustains it by his power. But when you get down to what that really means, he's sustaining it by his power There's not one bird that falls without his permission. There's not one hair off your head without his knowing about it. It almost kind of circles back around in that same sense that God is literally in every bit of information of every living creature going, I like that, I like that, I want that, I want that. To every blade of grass, I want that, I want that, I want that flower. I mean, the mind of God is amazing. Do you get that? The mind of God is amazing. And the more we discover about computers and as as we make... um, what our attempts are to AI, artificial intelligence, the more we go into that, all we should do as Christians is, is be, uh, be supportive of that as, as long as we keep a God worldview. But as, as we see how, how we can create these things in, in our computers with uh, microprocessors and how these little things shoot across this information, all we should do. Through all of that, is throw back up our hands and go, how mighty must the God that we serve be? How intelligent must He be? How great His wisdom must be, even beyond our own understanding, that we can see how these things work together. And yet, the mind behind all of this, mind behind all of this, is amazing. And then He's loving. He's kind. He's compassionate. He He enters into His creation. And so, uh, to me, my 21st century mind is not only in agreement with miracles not only in agreement with miracles but i believe the 21st century christian even has more evidence to believe in miracles with the pursuit of quantum physics with the pursuit of philosophy and modern science modern science and all of the computer science that we have determined so i agree with uh, this one man i won't uh, play the whole entire video for you but i played it on the streets with joe b one of the smartest, uh, you know, physicists that we have right now, a lot of these guys are either deists or agnostics, but they're certainly not honorary uh, atheists. You know, they're, not, they're smart enough to know, to hold on to a position that is like, I know there's no God, is actually stupid. They themselves look at those guys and they say, that's foolishness. Now, this man's name right here, let me get it for you, this is... Mikaku, uh, M-I-C-H-I-O, Michio Kaku, in Kaku, K-A-K-U is his last name. And it's on the Big Think page, and he talks about how everything is ordered in the universe. The mind of God, we believe, is cosmic music, the music of strings resonating. Listen, the mind of God, look how he brings this and He goes as deep as he but can. But you see, all this is pure mathematics. Amen. And so the final... Res- be that God is a mathematician. God is a mathematician. And when you read the mind of God, we actually have a candidate for the mind of God. The mind of God, we believe, is cosmic music, music. the music of strings, strings. resonating was talking about. through eleven-dimensional hyperspace. Eleven-dimensional hyperspace. Let that blow your mind. But isn't that amazing? That's the thing that Brandon was talking about, is that string theory, it's kind of like you think of strings like on an instrument and how we make music with strings. Um, and there's something in, in that, the vibrating of the strings, it's, it produces a sound. This mathematician is literally talking about this as if God has done it all. Now, if you ask him, does he believe in the Christian God? He has other interviews. He doesn't think so for whatever reasons. But I don't care what he says as an unbeliever. What I want to hear is what he can say as a scientist. And as a scientist, he knows He has to bring God into the picture. So when I go out to Wright College and I meet some smart aleck, snarky, know-it-all that thinks he's going to tell me there's no God and he has science to prove it, I'll show him the greatest minds of our planet look at him as a foolish person. They can't even have the conversation without God. Because when we talk about string theory and we get to our biggest, uh, you know, I'll just put a book here to represent it, and we say, like, I know. Like, here's everything I know. The very next question that we have is, Why is that the way it is? (laughs) You know, why does mathematics show us string theory? Why does mathematics work? Why does logic work? Why do I even want to do math, you know? Uh, Why is it I have a morality system built in me that when I do math, I tell the truth about math instead of lie to all of you, make up my own numbers? Because science doesn't do it itself. Science is done by scientists who are creations of God, created to discover the order of God. And so I love to share that with you in Bible college because miracles in the 21st century should be common. We should be seeking after the living God as Pentecostals, leading the way. And Dr. Craig Keener wrote a two-volume work on miracles. Our greatest scholar on the book of John living today and one of the greatest New Testament scholars is Dr. Craig Keener. He is Pentecostal, married to a native African woman. Their story is amazing about how they she had to flee a country because of persecution and how they met and married. It's such a beautiful story, such a great scholar, such a Pentecostal lover of God's spirit, and even reachable by Facebook to take time for little old me to answer my questions. He's on Dr. Brown's show quite a bit, and uh, just a great all-around guy. And he himself, in that volume series, the two-volume series on miracles, documents miracles all over the world, shows you how miracles in the Bible were commonplace, church history validates it, how today it's still happening. And he comes up with some some number on his his, uh, surveys, an estimate, that uh, if, the, if the world right now is uh, 7 billion people, there's somewhere around 300 million that have experienced a miracle or have had a, a friend or a close relative experience one where they now know that, that, that they experienced it. So it's either them, I experienced it, or they experienced it, and I can testify to it as a witness. And so, you know, that's just amazing. And and that to us should encourage us to believe God to do what only he can do. Amen? Can I get an Amen. Amen. Well, now let's look at some lessons from this. I have the breakdown there if you guys ever want to review it, and I know you guys love my notes on Sunday, so you guys can always go back as preachers and learn how to preach like your papi, preach like your pastor, or as the Latinos like to say, preach as your papi. But you know what I've heard as of lately, that, uh, that, that the word papi is more of a romantic term. So I, I need to say uh, it more like daddy, like, like, like see, it, it, Papa. There we go. Thank you. Because that, that that doesn't have the romantic thing, you know, tied to it. So I used to kind of mess around with some of the staff, and they, and they had to tell me, like, hey, you know, that, that may come across wrong to somebody. If you are in a staff meeting and there's girls present, and you're like, who's your poppy? you know? Like, that may just, like, said, But. You know, like, it, but from the African-American community, which I've been influenced by, like, who's your daddy, you know? Like, you can say that and never mean it's sexual. You can mean it just like I'm playing you on the court, like, who's your daddy, boy? You know, you could be like that. But from what I understand is every time you go, like, who's your poppy? like, every time you say it, it's got, like, that romantic side to it, right? Okay, you got it. You got it. Okay. So let's put this to ministry now. Here's the lessons, and let's see if I, how many I can get through. Always put God first in ministry. Admit your inability in ministry and God's ability. Give God everything in ministry. Do whatever Jesus says in ministry. Get ready for an abundance. Dream big in ministry. And always keep Jesus as the bread of your life and give the bread of life, Jesus, to the people in ministry. Can I get an amen? It is so simple. I was you know, waking up this morning, thinking about what I was going to do, getting ready, and I was just like, man, do I need to you know, really come up with a lot of new points? And I just instantly just heard the Lord say, you know, just put ministry at the end of all of this and it's perfect. You know? Always put God first in ministry. You know? And if you always ever want to have fun at a, at a Chinese restaurant, if you guys ever heard about this, just take the fortune that you get with the fortune cookie and just add at the end what? In the bathroom. You will find great success today in the bathroom you know you will meet a new person and they will change your life in the bathroom you know hardships await you in the bathroom you know what's that right yeah exactly so you you know you put in the bathroom well just right here in ministry and everything is really just as applicable and I came here, you know, just to cook the bread hot and fresh for you guys with, with my mind and heart ready to hear from the Lord, because I could be here all day on examples of how these things can apply. Well, let's start with always put God first in ministry, Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The, the thing that we see here is that Jesus wasn't seeker-sensitive. It's like, what's wrong with you, Jesus? Why are you preaching 12 hours on these people? Because let's just say it was from sunup to sundown, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., you know, 7 to 7, whatever. They've been there for a long time. This is not what you do when you want to be seeker sensitive. You want to preach about a 20-minute message, tell a few stories, and Juan Garcia has a great video up from a Baptist brother, Crossway, that talks about preaching not your dog, but preach the Word of God. And he literally describes it to a T, as I've said before, and he does it much better than I have. Uh, I could because he just really brought it together in a way that I hadn't thought through it all, but I agree with it 100%. I've said it very similar, and that is when I'm preaching the Word of God, I can literally see people like yesterday. I can see them kind of nodding off, but the moment I start telling a story, or just like they come to, and if they weren't asleep, they'll look at me even more. They'll be like, yeah, tell me a story. And then what he said is, but, you know, if I tell a personal story about something in my life, you know, I'll get their attention. He says, but, man, if I talk about my dog, he said some people will even cry. He said, you know, I'll tell a story about how I had to put him to sleep and how it, no, seriously, he drew out this whole thing. Look at Juan Garcias' page about how he'll even tell the story there. And he's like, people will cry. And then he says, then if I ever, if I ever say, I've had a hard day, and this is what's been bad in my life. He said, I mean, everybody wants to hear right then and there. Uh Uh-oh, what's pastor struggling with, you know? What's pastor going through? Yeah, come on. And then what he said is, what he said is, we as pastors get so used to the compliments we get after those kinds of services where we talked about the dog. We get used to hearing people say, I really related to you. To the point now, what, what do we do unintentionally? Even if we have good intentions to begin with, what do we do unintentionally? we start lessening the word lessening the exegesis lessening the explanation of the scripture and go more toward story more more toward story until you're what you become what they call a springboard preacher you literally just use the the context of the scripture just as a as a diving board and you just kind of bounce on it a little bit like here I am this is a scripture let's read it at the beginning and then boom You bounce off of it into the pool of your own thoughts and stories and connection points of wherever you think it will fit best. And you left that scripture back a long time ago. May we never do that. May we make the word of God primary in what we're doing as ministers. Jesus, if he had set up uh, Philip and he knew he was testing him about the bread, then we know he was setting up all 20,000 of those people Because he was preaching on purpose to be that long to see who would stick around. And see who would see the miracle. And so oftentimes we look at Jesus doing the opposite of seeker-sensitive ministry, the opposite of fast growth ministry. We see sometimes see Jesus doing the rebuke and make a small church ministry. Now, that doesn't mean every small church is spiritual and every big church is bad. It just looks like Jesus is oftentimes doing what God told Gideon to do: lessening the number, lessening the number. Because by the time you get to the end of John chapter 6, verse Verse 66, who was there in the second service? Because I pointed it out. There you go. John 6, 66. And what does that come out to be? You guys get it? You can be a little superstitious on that if you want, or a little spiritual, whatever you call it. You know? But what does it say? At, At that point, many of his disciples left him, forsook him. They turned their back on him. And why did they do that? Because he starts to rebuke them and say, Stop following me just because I feed your belly. Start doing what I'm telling you to do. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. John chapter 6, verse 66. So in ministry, we cannot allow these temptations to distract us from what is most important. We keep God first. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, can we fellowship and have fun in church? You know, the youth group did something over the holiday weekend for, uh, you know, bringing the young people just to spend time with them as family, funzy onesie. Had people dress up in a onesie. And it just happened to be the one time we had to call an ambulance for a sick child. And here comes the fire department. And, and Steve said they looked at, at this church so weird because everybody's dressed in onesies, you know, especially the pastor dressing like Chewbacca. He's like, yes, we have a sick child. Please help them, you know, whatever, teenager going through something. And, and that's okay. But if we did that every week, that's not okay. If we started prioritizing that, that's not okay. If we only did that, uh, if, I mean, if we prioritized that above discipleship and, and made that our victories, made that what we got excited about, like, oh, we had 100 people because we did X, Y, and Z. Well, did you make disciples? Did you preach the word? Well, then if if you're going to rejoice over you having 100 people or 1,000 people or whatever, then why don't we rejoice over uh, Kanye West when he has a concert? You know, because it's kind of like the same thing, isn't it? You know, it's like somebody wants to tell you about how big and bad their church is. Man, I go to my church, you know, there's about 10,000 people there. And it's almost like they just want you to stop and go, wow, you must be cool, Seriously, I always have people, because I live in the suburbs, a lot of big churches around me, and, and when they come around me with the big churches, they always want to ask me how big my church is, and then when they find out how small I am to how big they are, they always want to tell me like they're going to help me, and they're, and they're going to you know, try to connect me, and I always got to tell them, you need to tell your pastor that, that he needs my help. And that always throws them off. That throws them off because they're thinking, we're so big and bold. we got 10,000, little old you. Don't you want our help? And I'm like, no, I don't want your help. I don't want to be backslidden like you. Now, if I ever meet a good church, like if Jensen Franklin was around here or some of these churches that I really like and look up to, or Robert Morris, or some of these guys, I, I would be a little bit different about it. I'll just be like, man, thanks for your help. I love you guys. But that's not just not for me. But if it was offering something what I was doing, like discipleship, I'd say sure. You know, if you've been doing it longer than me, you have more a track record with it. Sure, let's go for it. But you're doing something totally opposite of us. Your pastor couldn't even be a deacon in my church. Most of your church probably ain't even going to heaven. No, 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 no. Let me get a little sassy with you here. I don't need your help. Your pastor needs my help. He needs to fly me in for the conference, you know, just fly me from here to Barrington. I'll come on in the private jet. You'll save money, whatever, you know. But, but that's not how the world is, though. Most of the time, the ministry world is not going to look at you like that. They're, they're going to look at you like, what are you, dumb? You're keeping them out here for 12 hours? they're starving, they're hungry. What's wrong with you, Jesus? And and I mean, I I got 12 minutes left here, so I got to probably condense some stuff together. But once he does the miracle, it's like, you should be king now. Remember when his brothers kind of mock him a little bit later, like, why don't you go to the temple? Why don't you show off everybody? And he's like, for you, every time is a good time. Why? Because you're just an opportunist. But for me, I only do what the Father says. And I love that Jesus wasn't here to kind of be the next guru, the next mega pastor, the next big thing. Jesus came to be a servant of all. Jesus showed us what the kingdom of God is really like. Because it wasn't about earthly power. It wasn't about prestige. It was about heaven coming to earth. Heaven and earth united, intermingled God and man. And we've lost that. And that's why he would say to his disciples all the time, what are you guys talking about? Oh, Jesus, we're not talking about anything. Oh, no, you were. I heard you arguing about who was going to be greatest in my kingdom. Why are you doing that? Here, let me pull over Lucas. This is the greatest in my kingdom. Be like him. Be like the child that goes wherever I go, says whatever I says, wants to be like daddy. Be like this one. Stop being like the world. Then in another place he says, you know what? In this world they lord over each other. The one who's got money lords it over the poor. The centurion lords it over the one that's not in the military. He'll come and take what he wants. But not among you. Let it not be like that among you. Let it be as the greatest among you is the least. Let the first be last. Let the servant of all be the greatest. And so we need to love people, not for the sheep, uh, not not for the the wool that they give us as sheep, but to love them as the sheep they are, the, the sons and daughters of God. And if teaching them the hard things of God might offend them, might cause them to leave, let us clear our hands and our conscience of that responsibility by at least giving it to them and saying, Now I have told you. Now, can we be successful and holy at the same time? Absolutely. Nothing wrong with that. Largest churches in the world are discipleship-based churches. Nothing wrong with having both. But I just am concerned that in America, we confuse it all the time, and we don't look at church the way Jesus looked at church. Jesus looked at church as it's about God's kingdom. It's about my Father's kingdom. It's what he always talked about, kingdom, 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 business. It was always about his Father's kingdom, and it was about righteousness. And so at that moment, what did the father want him to do? Father wanted him to preach 12 hours straight, no food, and let's go from there and let's see who sticks around. That's what the father wanted to do. And so are you willing to do that? You know, are you willing to pursue the prayer times that God has told you to do? Maybe somebody says, well, I don't like those kind of prayer times, but you got to stay on what God told you to do. Or the youth ministry. Oh, you know, Steve, we would have so many more youth if we would just do this. Well, what if, what if doing that compromises our message? But maybe it doesn't start off as a big compromise. Maybe it starts off just as a little compromise. The same thing um, is like when you're trying to hit the moon. Here's the earth, you know, here's the moon. You're, you're, you're sending off this rocket into space right here. Well, what, what do they teach you in, you know, rocket science? I just brought all I know about rocket science. Is if you start off a little bit wrong at the launch, you know, it's going to be a whole lot wrong as you keep going. Because the more you follow that trajectory that trajectory that's wrong, the more you're going to be wrong. And so let's say I just, I'm off by one degree. That one degree is going to keep pushing me all the way like this. I'm going to end up somewhere over here at Saturn or something. But if I want to end up at the moon, I've got to start off right. I've got to start my path right. How are you going to start off your ministry? How are you going to do this? Are you going to build it on discipleship? Or are you going to build it on cons- um, consumerism, consumption? Because that's what people will instantly be attracted to. What you give them, the best thing at the lowest cost. And so what do people want right now in church? What do they want? Are, are people flocking to churches right now because they want the kingdom of God and discipleship? No. What are most people flocking to church for? They don't want to go to hell. They want their family to be blessed. They want to have purpose in life, do good things. All of that can come later. But that's not what Jesus told us to do first. What Jesus told us to do first was seek the kingdom of God. As I told the story before about C.T. Studd, you guys should look that up. He would be the equivalent of a Baez. He was a young, attractive athlete in Oxford where cricket was the big deal. He's awesome at it. And even different than Baez, C.T. Studd came from million dollar family, a million-dollar family, a rich, wealthy family. And yet he heard uh, D.L. Moody preaching. His heart was convicted. The Lord spoke to him and said, I want you to forsake your sports. Give, it all, give all your attention to theology. I want you to forsake your family's business, and I want you to move to China and be a missionary. You see? Imagine Baez literally saying right now, I'm going to give up everything I have in baseball. At the, at the peak of my career, I just won the World Series. I'm going to give up all the sports deals, all the, all, all the endorsements, everything, and I'm going to go move right now to the 1040 window and go work with Dick Brogdon. And Dick Brogdon is an awesome missionary from the Assemblies of God. I'm going to go work with the Live Dead movement. And so I want you to think about that. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. What about me? Why don't you look at me as an example as I follow Christ as well? Here I am, suburban white boy from Fort Wayne, Indiana, going to a megachurch, going to a church of thousands. Why not stay here? I was offered the chance to stay there to join their master's commission. If I had stayed there, I probably could be pastoring that church right now. Right now, I could be pastoring that mega church. Now, I'm not saying every mega church has missed God, but that could have been me. You would have never known me as the cargo pant-wearing cool pastor. I would be that guy somewhere off in an office. This would be being done by other people, and you would never know me as that. That's who I could have been. And every now and then you'll see a picture of me on Facebook with that kind of hairdo I would have wearing some kind of funny outfit. I don't do that as much anymore, but back in the day I put up a Professor Joe picture. If you want to see it, just flip through my pictures and you can find it because I have an SUM shirt on. I take off my glasses and I do a side swipe, you know. But, of course, I wouldn't be a lame senior pastor like that, but, uh, but that could, could have been my path well why did I go to New Orleans because I was being pulled by the kingdom of God to go be an urban minister I was gonna seek God in that way that way And, and even today like in Chicago or at this time of my life in Chicago, when we started Wicker Park, you know, we did some attractive things on flyers. These things sometimes are not opposite of the kingdom of God. Cool music, great flyers, promotion, as long as it doesn't take the place of what's first and, you know, kingdom of God and righteousness. So we do this. We have a great launch at Wicker Park, Chopin Theater, great way to start a church. Over 100 people come to the launch, and I could see we had people from the community but I instantly, as a preacher, because I read faces. I could probably tell some of you right now how, how some of you are tired. Some of you are trying to keep up with me, but you're checking in and out. It's, it's something that I can see as a preacher. Some of you are excited, and you're always my favorites. I got some favorites. I'll just say all of you are my favorites today, okay? Mm, pastor's tough. Ta- pastor's got to be tough sometimes, but today I'm to be nice. That's why I did. I'm to be nice. Anyways, you're all my favorite. Okay, now watch this. I could see their expressions changing as I started naming sins. Like, they knew at that moment, first service, this guy's going right for us. Now, like always, you cut those numbers in half for the time after your launch. You get 100, you'll probably have 50 the next week. And I could start seeing them falling off. I could start seeing them falling off. And the ones that I had a chance to talk to were telling me that. I love the music. I love you as a speaker. I love the time you have it because we were doing it Tuesday nights. I, I just, you know, I love this. I love that. I love this. It, it, was, it was cool, man. But it was just that one thing that I kept bringing up was sin. And then I listened to my friends' messages, and I have, and I've seen how they've grown their churches out of those launch stages. Never hear anything about homosexuality. Never hear anything about abortion, the genocide of our age. Never hear the call of discipleship to deny yourself. No, all of their messages. If you, if you just look at them, and I, I would probably do this uh, with grace to, to you guys, not so that we'd be judgmental, but just to show you what, what it looks like. And I did in my discipleship class. I I would show people these messages so that they could, they could really see it. As is, is you'll just see, you know, uh, relationship messages, family messages, uh, appreciating the gift messages, the gift of Jesus, you know, like the Christmas time type stuff. And it's all of these just. Just cherry-picking the cotton candy verses of the Bible, putting them together. I mean, just listen to an Andy Stanley message. Listen to a Joel Osteen message. Listen to a Bill Hybels message. Listen to a Joseph Prince message, and that's exactly what it is. You will never hear the sinner guilty of his sin. If there's any mention of sin, which some of them won't mention sin, like Joel Osteen won't mention it, won't mention sin or hell or judgment. He said it in interviews. I won't do it. Even if it's mentioned, it's always mentioned as, you got a problem. And I have a problem, you have a problem, so we're just working on problems. Salvation becomes a way of working on problems. The biggest problem with that is it's never definitive. You never know when someone actually gets saved. Because if we're all sinners, and I'm still a sinner, then what's, the, what, what's salvation really? This becomes a works-based religion, self-help. And then obviously after that main problem of it totally disrespecting God and salvation, is that it never gives people the opportunity to see them the way the Bible and God sees them? Wretched, miserable, blind, and poor. It's like amazing grace wouldn't even make sense in many of those churches, wouldn't even make sense to many of their messages because he didn't save a wretch like me. He saved a cute person like me. That's how I was saved. That wretch, my goodness, what were they doing back then? Boy, a wretch, boy, I'm not a wretch. And there's even some versions of that song where they've taken out the word wretch. Yes, they've actually even changed the words of amazing grace to take out the word wretch in some of these churches. I'm being 100% honest. Now, does that mean we come up angry at the people? No. As I talked about in our discipleship books, and it's the same thing here, what do you want? Dr. Angry who just says, you You know, you come in with cancer. you got cancer. You're going to die. There's no hope for you. Or do you want Dr. Feelgood? Oh, you don't have cancer. Nothing's wrong with you. You're blessed, you know. Or do you want Dr. Truth? Dr. Truth says, bad news, good news. Bad news is you do have cancer. That's true. Good news is there's a cure. Let's do the surgery, et cetera. You know, what do you want? I want truth. I don't want greasy grace, and I don't want angry, wrathful person either. I want the truth of God that shows me who I am without Him, but shows me who I can be with Him. There's no condemnation in that message. That message is a message of grace and compassion and love, because the Bible says it's the loving kindness of God that draws men to repentance, to repent of their sins. And so you don't know you need a parachute until the plane is crashing, and you know it's going to burn. And especially if it's your fault because you lit that plane on fire and did a lot of stupid things on that plane. And that's what you need to understand. Yes, you destroyed this plane, and you're on it right now. But here's a parachute called the grace of God. Now put it on. Put it on and jump out with Jesus. Amen? I could be here all day. Point one. Didn't even get past anything else. But I think you guys got a lot to chew on. Go back and maybe pray in your devotional time and just see some of these points and go, Okay, I could see how this can relate to ministry. I mean, what about the one here in closing in 2 Corinthians 3, 5? This is Paul in the context of ministry. I actually had to stretch it a little bit to make it a generalized point. When I was talking about we can't be good husbands without God, we can't be good, you know, whatever without God. But this is actually, excuse me, the context is ministry, ministry. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. So those of you who say, man, I'm not a good student. Well, you're in a perfect place for God's wisdom then. You say, well, I'm not very strong. I don't have a lot of boldness. I can't go out witnessing with witnessing with you. Well, you're in a perfect place to get baptized with the Holy Ghost, filled with power then. Every need you have is a great place to meet God. As the, uh, Every problem you have is a great place to meet God as the problem solver. Every issue that you face, every, every thing that you deal with in life is a great place to know God as your provider and as the power that is greater than anything you'll face. Amen. Joe B., would you prepare to shut it off after our prayer now, please? Lord, we thank you that today you are more than enough, all that we need in ministry. We set our hearts on you today and ask you to fill us with your power, your wisdom, your grace, and enable us to do all that you've called us to do. May we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, doing it your way to get your results. And Lord, I pray that uh, we will find our competency, our strength, and our power in you. And we will give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said amen. Let's give it up for Jesus.